Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have Alex Thorne. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, hey, Nick. Happy to be here. So you start your shows with a rap. Talk, let's talk about hip-hop really quickly first. Uh, sure. Why do you start your shows with a rap, and where does your love of hip-hop mm. come from? Yeah, I think the short answer is because we can, um, because I made hundreds of beats uh, over the last 15 years so um, that I own because I made them, and... Um, we love hip hop, so we're gonna we're already using before we started rapping on the podcast. We were using my beats for the intro and outro music and whatnot. Um, and then you know, I mean, I I've been rapping since I was maybe fourteen, um, and so I'm not gonna dox my complete age here, but that was a long time ago. Um, so I, you know, I think humbly I'm able to say I'm not bad at it. And certainly, if you put me in a studio, I'm actually behind the uh set up, the engineer is set up for in our podcast studio right now but uh, right over here on the other side of this computer is where I shoot my podcast and if you put me dude you put a mic in front of my mouth you put some of my beats on my headphones it's just a matter of time before uh I start rapping and then yeah and and then I think from a pure marketing standpoint which is it's a it's a fun differentiator I don't know anyone else that raps on their podcast certainly not every week all right well you guys uh, it's just fun though you guys heard and it we here love, first we love hip hop music you guys heard, heard it here first. Alex Thorne is not bad at rapping. So uh, <laughs> go check out his pod. But Alex, tell the audience about yourself. Um, you can give us a, a quick uh, Bitcoin journey as well. But where do you work? Uh, what is Galaxy? What do you guys do there? And how did you get there? Yeah. Um, yeah, the podcast too is called Galaxy Brains because I am head of research at Galaxy. Um, and uh, that's you know sort of a pun here. And um, yeah, so I run research at Galaxy. Galaxy is a big multi-service financial services company um, with multiple lines of business in crypto. Um, we have a big Bitcoin mining business that mines Bitcoin um, all over the place. And we have a big trading business. So I think especially now, given what has happened in um, institutional trading and, and lending um, in the last you know 18 months, Galaxy, I would venture to say, is probably the biggest, if not one of the biggest, um, or I should say is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in, in crypto trading, including Bitcoin. Um, and so that, that business trades with institutional counterparties, right? There's no retail trading. In fact, we don't have any retail-facing business at Galaxy. Um, so that's hedge funds, allocators, right? Uh, other types of you know, maybe family offices, et cetera, that we face as a counterparty. Um, there's all, we also have an asset manager, so we have an asset management business, um, Galaxy Asset Management, right, that offers both uh, active and passive strategies for institutional investors. So think of something as simple as like the Galaxy Bitcoin Fund, right? You're, a, you're an allocator, you want exposure to Bitcoin, maybe your, your documents and your structure don't allow you to hold Bitcoin directly, right? Well, you can buy a security, which in this case is a private fund that owns Bitcoin. Um, we also have some active strategies. Um, and, and, you know, we're involved in, in trying to expand, um, you know, I, I'll just say it's, it's not, it is public. We have an ETF filing with Invesco for a Bitcoin ETF. So that's all part of the asset manager. Um, we have an investment banking or advisory business. So they do M and a advisory for startups, et cetera. Um, and we have a big venture operation, um, at galaxy, um, which is, um, been investing off Galaxy's balance sheet for at this point. I mean, it was 2023. Galaxy was founded the, essentially at the beginning of 2018, so almost five years of investment there. Um, we have other stuff too that doesn't fit neatly into those buckets yet. But um, and like I said, we have a research team, 
which I uh, lead and which um, covers the whole the whole business, right? And we work with clients, both internal and external counterparties, um, external on understanding cryptocurrency markets, right? So we publish public research on galaxy.com slash research. Um, we also publish privately and send stuff to our clients and counterparties. Um, and we help, you know, Galaxy develop its business strategies based on our you know, understanding of both the technology and markets behind cryptocurrencies. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL. Why do we love River? River is a Bitcoin only exchange. They offer lightning network deposits and withdrawals. And most importantly, guys, they do not outsource custody of their Bitcoin and customers Bitcoin to a third party custodian. River has its own multi-sig custody solution. That means that it is not using some other company to store Bitcoin that is purchased within their platform. So make sure you go check them out, river.com slash TBL and learn about River today. So we wanna take advantage of having you uh, in your research background today. What are the things that investors care most about? What do your clients care most about? What do you internally, uh, as a firm, care most about when it comes to the desk? Is it as, as simple as, hey, Alex, what is Bitcoin worth? Give us a valuation model for where do you think it's worth today, next year, in 10 years, um, and across the cryptocurrency landscape, or is it more complicated than that? Um, it is complicated, but um, I would say it, it varies depending on who we're talking about, right? Like I said, the asset manager has clients, right? And that's a, that's a you know, they're an investment advisor, right? So they, they have clients and their clients, I think, it's fair to say are mostly a slightly different cohort of investor than the trading businesses counterparties um, who are a little bit more tactical and maybe even shorter term um, and, and tend to trend a bit more crypto native, I would say, than the asset managers clients. So there's a, a variety of things that they want to know about and that, um, you know, we're, we talk with them about um, across that spectrum. I will say when it comes to the you know, a, a sort of a more short term. So I, let, let me say this way, Nick, the, the question of Bitcoin's long term value is something I encounter a little bit more when working with the asset managers clients than I do with the trading desks counterparties. Most of the trading desk counterparties, they get crypto, they they know Bitcoin, they they treat it, frankly, as a macro asset. At this point, we see a lot of people trading Bitcoin against rates, against fixed income moves against broader market, right? And, and and holding it and then not holding it and then holding it again, right? And like being a bit more tactical. So I can talk a little bit about what they're interested in, but on the on the valuation side, um, I mean, look, this is a big question. I think depending, there's a lot of ways to, you know, skin the goose, uh, skin the cat <laughs> on this. I think one of the simplest ones that Paul Tudor Jones really brought into the mainstream narrative, but of course, Bitcoiners have been talking about this for years, was the idea that Bitcoin has gold-like properties, but it's digital, and that thus, like a simple sort of venture, total addressable market type analysis uh, would say, well, you know, if it's only 3% of gold's market cap, couldn't it go to 10, 20, 30, 50, 100? Um, and what would that mean for the valuation in that case? I, th I still think that's a reasonable way to think about valuing Bitcoin. Um, it's simple, um, which is both good and bad. But um, 
I think it's it's reasonable. I, I think it's fair to say that Bitcoin is like gold with wings. It's gold you can actually use, right? It has deflationary properties. It has sound monetary properties, but it's highly transferable, divisible, et cetera. Um, and so, so I think that's reasonable. I will say there's other many other ways to think about it, you know, and that can also be quite limiting if you think about it only as gold and you're an investor and you don't hold gold. <laughs> then you could say, great, you totally convinced me Bitcoin's digital gold. Uh, we don't own gold in this fund. Like, we'll, we'll see you next year, right? So, and I think it is excessively limiting given that it, I think it's more than gold. Um, I think it's also more than a store of value. I think there's a lot of evidence, and I disagree with some of my Bitcoin friends on this, that Bitcoin is actually relatively widely used for payment. It's more widely used, I think, than some national currencies, small ones, but. Um, so it's not just a store of value. Gold is not used for payment. Bitcoin is. It's both used as a store of value and it's used for payment. Okay. I don't know how to calculate the value of that usage exactly, right? But then I would say, and increasingly, um, although I would say this is still a minority um, faction in Bitcoin, but increasingly Bitcoin is being used as a platform, right? So you have the a platform upon which to build other things that are not necessarily um, – directly related to Bitcoin's use as a monetary asset or even a sound money uh, protocol. So ordinals being the obvious like one that came to fruition this year, but a lot of talk now about perhaps building other types of L2s on Bitcoin. Obviously, you have the drive chains debate, which is, you know, resurfaced, and you have um, some people building rollups on Bitcoins and the on Bitcoin. And the idea is both of those, actually I should say all three, including ordinals, portend a future where Bitcoin is more than a monetary asset, whether for storing or for spending, right? It's it's actually something some people use it for building applications, in which case valuing it becomes even trickier, right? Because um, when you look at, say, the Ethereum ecosystem, which is, you know, despite the, I would say, wrongheaded emergence of the idea of ultrasound money, um, you know, for a network that changes its monetary policy regular, I mean, relatively frequently, I think no matter what the current inflation rate is, it's hard to look at that as a sound monetary system. Um, but that even that's, I, th I would say, a little bit of a minority position in Ethereum. Primarily, it was and, and really is and always has been, um, you know, digital oil, right? Digital, and they call it gas, right? Fees are called gas to power the virtual machine that runs applications. And there's a whole slew of applications that people wanted to build, types of a DeFi, DAOs, NFTs, gaming, whatever. Um, and I, I don't think Bitcoin is like going all the way there. Um, it might be – I think it's fair to say it's trending a little bit in that direction with the emergence of ordinals and drive chains and rollups and more interest in it as a platform. But it's certainly a minority still. Um, but in that case, you know, it's hard to value Ethereum, even given the fact that some of these applications actually do generate cash flow. Um, it's still hard to value, right? So no one really knows, I would say, a way to value on an absolute basis. And, and keep in mind also, value by definition is subjective. And that's even true for valuing something like equities. We Most of the market has just agreed on frameworks to value them. It doesn't mean they're right, right? And so I, I, I don't know if there um, – I don't think there is a right way to value Bitcoin, but I know that there isn't an agreed-upon way to value it. And I think that would be the main impediment. And that has been an impediment for investors, right? Some need to show a valuation methodology. Well, there are several. I mean, I, I like some of um, 
what I've seen from Alpha Zeta at Swan. I, there's some interesting ideas, right? But and I and I do personally enjoy um, several of the like sort of relative value uh, ideas, MVRV and. Um, you know, these sort of things that look at Bitcoin's fundamentals and decide whether it's over or undervalued, but those don't typically help you arrive at a fundamental valuation. Um, so, yeah, it's a tricky question. I think what we typically do is provide a lot of information about how they could think about it. And I think, you know, if you think about Bitcoin as a high growth technology, then it would fit in a different place in your portfolio than if you think of it as a digital commodity gold uh, or commodity money like gold. Then it might go in an alt bucket in your portfolio. And, and these are tricky questions. It, it, I think it's still up to the eye of the beholder, but we're trying to do you know some work to bring some uh, agreement in, in this space. But you know, it, look, I, I also tell people, you know, don't don't get upset. Like you're not you're not alone. You know, I've been looking at this thing for almost, you know, for about 10 years actually at this point, and I don't know how to value it either. And that's because I don't think the world has ever seen a non-sovereign, decentralized, open-source monetary network capital itself capitalize itself from zero. Like it's new, and so it's okay not to know. Absolutely. And as a research publication ourselves, at the Bitcoin layer, we don't try to directly answer that question either. In my book, Layered Money, I suggested the gold market cap as a sensible at least relative metric to give you some orientation, but it doesn't begin to capture the properties of a digital decentralized apolitical money, which has never existed before. There is no comparison. And thank you for outlining a few things that, you know, to think about when starting to consider the value of Bitcoin. There, there, There is no way to value it easily. And for you to come on this show and say that you actually... (laughs) <laughs> have uh, a good idea of how it's valued would be obscene in its own nature. So um, we appreciate your answer. Alex, yeah, no um, <laughs> I want to touch on one thing, uh, one follow-up from something that you said. Pair trades. What are the pair trades that you actually see in the market? Do you guys – so first, let's explain to the audience. A pair trade is you're going to go long Bitcoin versus short something else or long Bitcoin versus – maybe long something else as a hedge, short Bitcoin, et cetera, uh, down, down the line. So it's a long or short Bitcoin versus long or short something else. You're pairing the trade with something. So I guess a small part of the question is, do you guys execute the other side of the pair if it's a non-crypto uh, asset? Or is it something that you just hear from your client that your client says, hey, I'm going long versus this. I have this on the other side with another broker. Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. It's a very tactical question. So we don't see this typically on the asset manager side. This is a sort of a galaxy trading thing. And and yeah, I mean, we've we've uh, helped facilitate plenty of these types of trades. I think um, the very obvious one is BTC ETH, which has been traded in all directions <laughs> over the years. Um, and of course, both of both legs of that trade are crypto assets that we trade, right? So we can um, facilitate sort of all sides of that trade. If if so, someone wants to do it, there's a whole bunch of this during the the run up to Ethereum's switch to proof of stake last September, right? A lot of people were longing ETH into that short versus something, including BTC. Um, there have been a whole number of incarnations of this trade to capture strategic sort of arbitrage opportunities. Um, you know, say uh, um, you know, OTC trusts, for example, that have a discount or premium to NAV and then longing or shorting the underlying while longing and shorting the the trust. Um, we don't, Galaxy Trading doesn't trade like listed equities, right? So there's no, we, we certainly can't facilitate 
um, things on that side of a, of a pair trade if that is what you're doing. Um, but keep in mind, I mean, you have a decent number of, of publicly traded equities at this point, whether it's these trusts or whether it's you know public companies. Um, there there are people interested in those types of more tactical trades. Um, another one we've obviously seen over the years involves stable coins, right? Plenty of people have longed or shorted a tether or a, or a USDC or against each other, right? Like that's been something that's been being done since they've existed, and um, so I think there there are interesting ways to express a more complicated view of the market using a, a pair trade strategy. Um, and keep in mind, we also are a big player in derivatives, our trading desk. So I mean, that's. Um, primarily in options, right, and 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 um, OTC options, and I think we're one of the biggest market makers in options there there is. So, and there's you know myriad ways to express yourself that way that that have similar effect. And you mentioned rates. Are there any uh, are there any Bitcoin treasury yield pair trades that you see out there in the market? You hear from clients, hedge funds that you guys participate in that uh, you can talk about. Um, that is a good question. I don't think that I can talk about specifically, but like I said, some of these, I think a, a simple thing to look at is the, the, um, the basis trade, right? Which has been done, you know, for years. I think I was looking at 30 day rolling basis today. It's mostly flat, um, uh, but historically, right, has been a, um, has been elevated, um, plenty. And, and a lot of people have captured a premium there by, by trading the futures against the spot. Great. And, and, and for the audience, um, you know, treasuries only come into come into uh, play there in the basis of Bitcoin futures versus Bitcoin spot because there is a time value of money aspect to the trade, to any futures trade. You have a time to expiry, and that time represents there's a price to that time, and that price correlates strongly with treasury yields. But it's not a direct, uh, and and that's what Alex is referring to there. Yeah, I mean, basis on Bitcoin also has come down lately anyway. So the premium you could collect from a trade from doing that has declined at the same time as the time value of money has increased with Treasury rates rising. Right. So, sort of a double whammy, I think, has made that trade not not a profitable for people in the last you know while. But certainly in 2020 and 21 in particular, the basis was pretty high. Right, so you could you could capture by by trading spot against futures pretty well. At the same time, treasury rates were low, so there was nowhere better risk free to put your money at you know for these for the durations of that trade. So that that was really encouraging it at, at the time. Uh, let's put this graphic up on the screen here for the audience. It, Alex, you talk about the lost supply of Bitcoin, and you it's this is a recent graphic from Galaxy. So can you walk us through? Uh, I see you. Uh, Pulling it up yourself here. Sorry, I didn't warn you. No uh, worries. But yeah, talk to talk to us through this graphic here, and tell us what what the grand takeaway is, and maybe you could even just introduce it in that. Um, what is lots lo, uh, you know supply last active even mean to you in the first place? Yeah. So in in this chart, I mean, this is this is from Glassnode. Uh, data, right? And, and and this is sort of a, a, a dissection of the HODL waves chart, right? Which was basically the same data, just making it a little simpler here. Um, the idea is if you look at, you can glean a lot of insights by looking at Bitcoin, Bitcoins, let's say literally UTXOs, pieces of Bitcoin, and when they were created, right? So just 
when bitcoins are transferred, uh, the existing piece of Bitcoin, the UTXO, the unspent transaction output, is destroyed. And at least uh, one more is created. Usually two or more are created, right? And, and so you're dividing Bitcoin. And that create date can, is, is what we look at a lot of times to understand trends in the age of supply, right? So if I say that chart says that this is the percentage of Bitcoin's supply that hasn't moved since X number of years, what we're doing is we're looking at the age of those UTXOs and saying, um, how old are they, right? And so, for example, Satoshi has UX UTXOs, we believe. You know, I think most estimates put Satoshi's mind uh, stack between like 850,000 or a million Bitcoin. They haven't moved, right? So we see them sitting there. So they have a very old age, right? And there's a, you can derive many different metrics based on this age thing, things like coin days destroyed, or in this case, percentage of supply uh, last active. So what we're doing with each of the lines in this chart is looking at the UTXO age, the percentage of the total supply that hasn't moved or been had its UTXO destroyed and a new one created, right? So that's I know I'm being a little bit oblique here, but if you think of coins moving, that might be simpler, right? The percentage of the supply of coins that haven't moved in one year or more, two years or more, three years or more, five years or more. And I think this, this shows us two things. One, it shows us that there are lost coins. This is not the main thing, but I'm going to throw this out here almost like a caveat. Um, there are probably lost coins. We know there aren't that many that are provably um, lost, but there are some. But then there are, say, like Satoshi's coins, right? We, we don't know if they're lost, but, you know, the longer they go without being spent, the more likely it is that they will never be spent, in my opinion. So that that's included. Satoshi's coins are in these numbers, right? Like they haven't moved in five plus years. They're in that number. They haven't moved in one plus years, right? They're in all the numbers. Um, but also, too, and, and I think the more relevant point and the reason why I share this chart is that it, it does show, I believe, an increasing propensity of holders to hold for longer, more holders holding for longer. And I, I don't think people in the Bitcoin community would be surprised to hear that because the dominant narrative for Bitcoin usage truly has been for quite a while now, at least since the block size wars, but it was dominant. It was one of the dominant ones before that, too. That Bitcoin is a gold-like long-term store of value, right? And that that you know stacking sats and hodling are sort of really still probably the most dominant memes in Bitcoin culture. So it shouldn't surprise people that um, people are they're doing it. They're hodling. I'm hodling. Right? I I I sold a bunch of Bitcoin in like twenty I think twenty thirteen when we ran up to eight hundred dollars. It was a good trade for me at the time, and I've regretted it ever since. And I basically have never intentionally sold Bitcoin um, since about 2015 because of that, right? So, you know, I learned my lesson, right? And 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 whether you learn it or not, maybe you came in, and that's because I I wasn't a I wasn't dogmatic about Bitcoin when I first learned about it. it took a few years for me to really go down the rabbit hole, um, but I think it's a sign that that um, Bitcoin is becoming, and this normally sounds like a bad thing in markets, but it's becoming more liquid. People are taking it off the market. And they're holding it and they're planning to give it to their children and they're planning to or use it to long term save up and buy something right that it's a savings technology and i think it speaks to the the um the power of that narrative of bitcoin as a store of value over as a medium of exchange i think 
um, which is, you know, again, it's it's culture. It's not inherent in the technology. Bitcoin's a perfectly great medium of exchange. It's pretty fast. It has final settlement. It's global. It's digital. It's weightless, right? It's divisible. Plenty of reasons why it's great for money. But I think culturally, a lot of people are using it as a store of value. And, and I show this just to say that, like, you know, you can see some bumps in these, in these, some dips in these. And that's typically when we get to, like, a new all-time high. Some people do bring their coins online and sell. Like, that's totally reasonable. It, it can make great financial sense, right? Like I'm not, I, I'm, I, I have no opinion about what people should or shouldn't do with their Bitcoin, but I think objectively the data shows that people are hodling. Today's video is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Use promo code BitcoinLayer to pick up your passport today. Now go check out this device. The passport is a great way to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. We all know the risks out there with keeping your coins on a third-party custodian. Get them into your own custody today with a passport and use Bitcoin Layer as your promo code for $10 off. And maybe you can just explain to people that uh, don't have a sense of the type of client size of Alex, uh, um, sorry, of Alex's company galaxies trading partners and when we talk about institutional adoption of bitcoin this is a a big theme maybe you can answer both this and where you see the etf the spot etf um going let's say in the next year or so not not any projection um here in the yeah. next few months but what what can you explain to the audience in terms of how big bitcoin has already become in terms of the types of players and the size of trades relative to other asset classes and these huge institutional, sometimes multi-trillion dollar players. Yeah, um, our our trading counterparties are typically, outside the average trading counterparty, and I don't, these aren't may not be accurate numbers. I don't have access to like a list of all of our counterparties or anything and how much they have, but. Um, I would say that they're probably between, you know, on the low end, 10 to $100 million funds, and on the high end, many multi-billion dollars uh, of, of trade of AUM. And so, including, I mean, truly like all the biggest hedge funds in, on, you know, in, in the world really are trading Bitcoin, if not with us and somewhere, mo almost all of them are trading it. Um, we're talking big size. I mean, in, in a, you know, tens of millions of dollars traded, right, or trades. Um, you know, or, or millions of dollars, but almost never less than that. Um, I think that, and again, a lot of these are, are, you know, as a simple sort of heuristic here, think of a long, short hedge fund, right? They're going to play markets. They have smart PMs, they think, right? They have research. They have ways to express their view on markets, and they have LPs who want returns, right? And sometimes Bitcoin can be the best trade, and that doesn't mean that these are shorter term tactical firms. Many of them have monthly or quarterly redemptions, right? So it's not a, these are not, you know, hedge funds are typically not, you know, multi-decade investments that people make. Um, and, and thus their, their time horizon is, is also shorter. Um, and many have, I mean, think about, uh, many have traded it on in size when they think it's undervalued and they think it will go up. And if you trade in size, you know, Bitcoin goes from 25 to 30, like that's a sweet return, right? And they may then sell, right? And one of the, I think the effects of the growing um, involvement of this size of institutional capital is sort of muting the volatility of it. And one of the reasons is because, well, you know, if you make 
you know, 10 or 15% on a trade in a couple months, that that's good. That's pretty good. And if you think about, um, so you're like, you're likely to take gains, right? And thus sort of put a bit of a ceiling on some of the upside. And that's totally possible. Same thing on the way down, right? If you see Bitcoin coming down and you have a view that Bitcoin long-term is going to be valuable, well, then you, you may step in and provide a floor more, more soon than it otherwise would if it were only small dollar retail investors, right? So I think that the, the growing institutionalization, which means many things, but in this case, I'm talking about pure flow size, um, does m contribute to what we've seen over the years, which is a declining decline in realized volatility for Bitcoin as an asset, which, by the way, I think is very positive for Bitcoin. I think when volatility is lower, investors can allocate more, right? One of the simplest ways to control for volatility in a portfolio is to limit your position size, right? That way, your your whole portfolio doesn't swing back and forth every time stuff moves. Um, and so if volatility comes down, well, what does that mean? That means that people can increase their position size, right, with less risk. That's how you do risk-adjusted returns in general is a volatility-adjusted, you know, metric. Um, and so I think declining volatility will be a major um, um, outcome of the increasing involvement of institutional capital in Bitcoin. And that's a positive thing. I also think that declining volatility, by the way, strengthens strengthens its the case for Bitcoin as a medium of exchange over time. One of the main reasons you don't want to spend with Turkish lira or Argentinian pesos, or or you do want to spend immediately, <laughs> or whatever it is, right, is that the value fluctuates so significantly that it makes it really hard to to trade to to conduct trade with. Um, and the same is true for Bitcoin. I mean, I think for small dollar. You know, purchases like on Lightning that are, you know, near instant, like volatility is not as big of a deal. Um, but, you know, if you're going to save for a house or you're going to buy something big or you got to plan for the future, it gets difficult with money when it's volatile. And that's true both on the inflation and deflationary side because, you know, if you – it's obviously true. I think your audience definitely knows on the inflation side. I think everyone interested in Bitcoin has looked at the effects of inflation, right? And the the primary effect is that your purchasing power declines over time, right? And so the incentive, and this is what many argue about why a deflationary money is better, excuse me, is that is to spend now, right? <laughs> spend sooner. And that's why, you know, I think Saifedean argues just broadly characterization of his view is that that has a whole bunch of downstream effects in society. It causes people to not think for the future, literally do things like build with cheap materials rather than with stone and brick and et cetera. But we all know what happens. That's why you see people in countries with hyperinflation rushing to turn their, their local currencies into commodities, right, which hold their value better. But it is also true that it harms its use as a um, currency, as a medium of exchange if it's highly deflationary. Because why would you go and spend Bitcoin now on a thing that may depreciate or even invest in a company? We've, I used to joke about this when I did VC at Fidelity. Like, why should, should we – do we think we can beat Bitcoin with this investment? I mean, right? Shouldn't we just put it in Bitcoin? Like, should we do a Bitcoin company or put it in Bitcoin, right? And, and that's, that's an important question. And, it, and, it, and, it, and so you can imagine that it, it, it contributes to a chilling of Bitcoin's use as a medium of exchange – and by the way, as investment capital, um, if it is gr growing in value significantly, like because you'd rather hold it than spend it. Um, so I think that's that's one thing people think about. I think um, when you look again back to your institutional uh, question here, 
and, and I'll pivot a little bit over to a more um, asset manager view of this, which includes the idea of an ETF, which is a brilliant vehicle, by the way, the exchange traded fund allows people to gain access to a, a whole wide swath of types of exposure very simply and cheaply. Um, whereas before you might have had to hire a, a registered investment advisor to do it for you on a bespoke basis or blah, blah, blah. First, you had the mutual fund, which democratized it, and then you had the ETF, which democratized it even more. The the longer term view, I think, is is really related to wanting exposure to something that is not correlated or less correlated, um, something that is more predictable and something that has growth potential. And I think Bitcoin you know, to some extent on each of those at any given time has had all those features and, and continues to sort of broadly speaking have those features. And we've seen a lot of interest in that. I think especially if you're an allocator, you do have typically a big bucket of alts that you're allocating to, right? And and um, I think there's an interesting interplay here between venture capital, the venture capital industry, which benefited significantly from zero interest rate monetary policy, right? When the time value of money um, is is very long. I guess is is long the phrase here. That well, we should use? it's high. I mean, uh, it's high. Expensive. Yeah. I mean, is uh, so when know. it's dirt cheap, though, you end up having to go out far on the risk curve to to find something that will earn better than you know the simplest investment, right? Like a stock, <laughs> like the, and and that contributed to a giant influx of money from allocators into venture capital funds over the last twenty years, um, not just in Bitcoin or crypto, just broadly, right? And now though with rates, you know, at four or five percent for the most part, even higher, um, you're kind of like, well, you know, technically, well, <laughs> economically speaking, these are risk-free rates, right? Um, of course, the risk of a default uh, by the sovereign issuer is is actually a risk, but you know, in, in economic language, they're risk-free rates um, because they can print more to pay them, <laughs> right? Like they have a money printer to pay that pay that pay those debts. Um, so you take almost no risk and then and and you have a guaranteed rate of return. And so when you have that, you start looking at things like that are riskier, like venture and saying, well, maybe I shouldn't put my money there because I can just or I'll put less of it there. And I think there's an interesting dynamic here where, you know, Bitcoin has typically been thought of as a risk on investment. And I think it's fair to say it still is. But um, on a fundamental basis, like when we look at its properties and I think also, by the way, some of the network data, I don't think that's that's not the whole story, right? I mean, Bitcoin is extremely predictable, transparent, you know, immutable, in, uh, totally auditable, right? There's tons of things that make it not risky, right, in, in, in that way. The only real risk is market volatility, I would say. And and so it's I, I think it remains to be seen how how big money allocators think about Bitcoin in a in an environment where rates are are higher and more competitive, I think the the sort of the the first stage thought is that it shouldn't perform well, and because it's a risk investment, and risk doesn't do well, as I explained, when money is earning significant interest. Um, but I think there is also reason to believe that sort of a second stage of thinking that maybe it isn't a risk investment, maybe it's something that's highly um, predictable and, and in that way safe, safe from intervention, safe from 
manipulation in, in certain ways, the asset itself, right? Markets are a little bit of a tricky situation, but as the markets themselves mature, I think that helps contribute to the idea that it's less risky of an investment. And of course, declining volatility contributes significantly to that view. So I'm not sure really what the next, you know, you know two to five to 10 years hold in terms of considering Bitcoin for a large scale allocator. But I do think it's going to shift towards something that is less of a risk uh, investment and something that's a little bit more of a of a hedge or or a, a safe haven even. Um, and I, I guess that's a long way of saying that maybe even we're talking about a little bit of a digital gold. But I think of it as gold that still has growth potential. I don't I don't see gold having significant growth potential when something like Bitcoin exists. Me personally. Um, and and so they look and just to get a little bit more specific, stepping back to like I said, the the the, the trading counterparties typically are are shorter term, more tactical thinkers, right? And the allocators are longer term thinkers. And so the arguments about Bitcoin's long term value resonate more with the asset managers, even while the hedge funds may believe it, or people at the hedge funds or whomever, right? They may they may also see the long-term value, but they they need short-term returns. They have to show them soon, right? So they they trade it more actively. Um, that's a lot to your answer to your question, Nick. Um, maybe just I'll stop here and you can you can step no, in and guide me a little. It's a great overview of the institutional relationship with Bitcoin, which is really what you, that's the area that you're working in. We all have you know, our specific areas of Bitcoin and the way that you've gone from Fidelity Venture Capital into institutional research for Bitcoin market maker and, uh, you know, financial participant. It really is important to give the audience a sense here of the types of players that are involved, how they see the asset, how muted volatility is contributing to longer term Bitcoin adoption. And what are some of the drivers and how we should think about risk-free rates versus Bitcoin and that relationship? Because you know the last question here for you, Alex, and if you can summarize it as quickly as you can, what matters more? Is it the cycle with rates and when we're going to go into easing for, for Bitcoin's next bull? Or is it supply and the having and just fundamental yeah. adoption? Um, or or is it both, which is probably... Yeah, it's a great question. I did see a debate on Twitter between TXMC and some others about whether it was the halvings historically looking back or the... Um, or, or or rates, basically, that, that led to the various bull runs that we had. Um, I do take the view that historically the bull runs were catalyzed to the extent they were by either of them, more by the halving than by by macro conditions. I think that's going to change or, or will change. I do think the, the having, you know, on, a, on an absolute basis, we're talking about a very small reduction in supply, right? From 900 coins a day to 450 coins a day, the having fourth having will happen sometime in April of next year. Um, that's pretty minimal when it, when you look at like daily volume that's traded on Bitcoin, it, it'll have some impact, right? And, um, but I, I don't think it's that Frankly, I don't even think the last one was that traumatic from a supply shock standpoint. Um, and I'm going to sidestep any reference to whether or not these are priced in anyway. They shouldn't have any. If you believe in efficient markets, they should have almost no effect on <laughs> the price. I don't believe in efficient markets in that way. So, um, But I think now Bitcoin is so much more widely traded by macro investors, hedge funds, people we've talked about, 
that it does fit into their buckets of other types of assets that are very rate sensitive. And it is too. It can be too. Right. And even if it's, you know, Bitcoin itself isn't affected, the Fed, when the FOMC meets, like the, their change to the underlying Fed funds rate has no impact on Bitcoin's monetary policy. Of course, thank God. And by the way, that's how it was designed, specifically so that it didn't. Right. Um, but the amount of capital available to allocate to various things, including Bitcoin, shifts as investor sentiment shifts, as the time value of money changes, as, um, as rates go up and down. So um, I do think this time we're much more beholden to the macro environment than we have been um, for the, you know, there were some fluctuations in like 18 and 19, there was a repo crisis in 19 and stuff that in the macro, but for the most part, I think Bitcoin's um, Bitcoin had existed in, 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 in is not in zero, but a zero to a near to a much lower rate environment, we'll say. And so, and even when rates were higher, you know, in the mid 2010s, um, Bitcoin was much smaller, right? The people buying and selling Bitcoin probably didn't, they weren't really like rates trading people, right? They weren't macro investors back then, mostly. Um, so it matters more today because of the types of investors and capital that is invested in and trades Bitcoin actively. It matters more today because the absolute impact of the having on Bitcoin circulating supply is significantly lower than it's been in the past and will continue to get lower. And it matters more because of how dramatic the rate hiking has been from global central banks and um, what a pivot on their policy position would tell the markets, which would be, I think, a huge shift at this point. And you go from zero to, you know, 0 0.25, like, you know, okay, like if it's the start of a giant regime, then sure. But it's not really till you start to really see the regime is taking place that you know how important it was. But now we're the Fed, and this is why, you know, from Chairman Powell, from other members of the FOMC, you hear this repeated mantra of higher for longer. They're terrified that we'll see that if they ease now, even though it looks like they maybe could, most of the macroeconomic data is showing some softening. I think um, not really like housing, but some right like that. And that's why you're starting to see these like these hikes and then pauses and hikes. Like they're sort of they're decelerating the rate at which they're hiking. Um, but they are terribly afraid that we'll get a 1970s, 80s Paul Volcker scenario where they raise it a whole bunch, think everything's fine, then cut it, and then it comes back even worse, and they have to raise it twice as high, right? That's They're literally terrified of that. Um, Jay Powell said that Paul Volcker is like one of his mentors, not mentors, like uh, his icons or whatever. Um, they know this, right? That's why they're preaching this higher for longer. And so rates are not likely to come down very soon. I think the markets are pricing 100 bips of cuts, by December 2024, the last time I looked, that's some cuts, but that's a long time, right? Like it's not a lot of cuts. It's not like we're going to go back to cheap, easy money anytime soon. I, I think that does that does pose a trickiness, I think, for Bitcoin valuation over that time period. It's certainly new. But like I said, I think the narratives are also changing. And Bitcoin, you know, we talked about that chart. Uh, Nick, that you showed uh, of the inactive supply, or I should say the last active supply, um, it, do it doesn't take much. There's not that much Bitcoin for sale these days, right? So um, things that are structural, like, say, major inflows, major renewed or new interest in the asset could create, you know, pretty big squeeze in the upward direction. There's Again, there's just not that much supply to buy. Right. It's and so um, that's when we think of something like the ETF, and, and of course we don't know when or if it will be approved or 
can't predict what will happen if it does, but you can imagine that there are potentially types of investors that would have bought Bitcoin but for a vehicle like an ETF. And creating new market access vehicles that appeal to large swaths of capital is something that could create structural flows um, that could impact the the valuation of Bitcoin, right? Particularly all else being equal, right? <laughs> and it looks like on the rate side, all else is going to be equal for a while. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, a, a, I'm not a doomer, and I'm not a optimist when it comes to the Fed at this point. I, and frankly, to be honest, in the Fed's credit, like I think this is among the most credible Federal Reserve regimes we've had in a long time. Like they realize that they messed up. They they cut too low and held it low for too long. They are definitely partially responsible, if not mostly responsible, for the inflation the world has seen. Right, the stimulus—it's not just monetary, but also fiscal. All of them. I mean, literally, checks were sent to people. I literally got—they looked at your tax return, saw your bank account information, just dumped money into your account. They did that to everyone. They delayed payments that people were supposed to make. Right, tons of money was injected into the system, and I think they probably realized too much was, and and they seem very committed to have a more credible monetary policy. And and you know, I've. When people ask if Bitcoin is a hedge for inflation, historically, I've said it's really a hedge on central bank credibility. Well, I mean, in a, in a regime where the central bank does look a bit more credible, you know, that shouldn't really – Bitcoin's alternative isn't, doesn't stand in as stark relief. Whereas in May 2020, when they embarked on the biggest money printing regime in human history, right when Bitcoin's monetary policy tightened, right, that was an iconic like once – perhaps once in a lifetime – juxtaposition that, um, you know, obviously propelled Bitcoin, I think was a major, major part of sparking Bitcoin's bull run. So even that one, right, I would say is maybe more was more rates than and, and but I, I will say that the, the having even if there is uh, a relatively small and declining absolute impact, it is a quadrennial marketing event. The mere fact that it occurs is incredibly bullish for Bitcoin's fundamental value, that it continues to occur, that it that it goes off without a hitch, right, that that the markets and the and the miners adjust to it like all of that is extremely positive it creates a huge it has a huge narrative value at this point if not a circulating supply value uh, and by with our luck we'll have the having in april we'll have the etf approval in april and we'll have the fed going into rate cuts in april so that we are <laughs> completely unsure of what drives the next Bitcoin bull run for the next four years. Um, uh, by our luck, that's the uh, ideal storm for that us. That would be fun. Of course. Uh, Alex Thorne of Galaxy, head of research, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. We really appreciate you breaking it down. The narratives sound uh, similar to what we're talking about, especially when it comes to the Fed. We've recently characterized it as a staring contest. Basically, they're waiting for the the thing that they could basically will the only thing that will make them cut, which is somewhat of a 50 percent or close decline in the stock market. That's the point where they'll have to actually, uh, you know, bring liquidity back until then. They're trying to just be on hold for as long as they possibly can give the audience where they can find you online, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Great to be here on the Bitcoin layer. I'm a big fan of the newsletter and the pod. And um, check check me out on Twitter at Intangible Coins. Galaxy Research on Twitter is GLXY Research. Um, and read our content at galaxy.com slash research and listen to Galaxy Brains, our podcast. Great. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for joining us, uh, everybody, today at the Bitcoin layer. The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by 
River. Go check them out today, river.com slash TBL for a Bitcoin only exchange and a great experience. River offers a DCA feature where you can stack sats without any fees. They offer Lightning Network withdrawals. So get your Bitcoin off of the exchange using Lightning Network instantly. And also the most important thing about River, guys, they do not use a third-party custodian. They have a multi-sig storage solution so that your Bitcoin, once you purchase your Bitcoin using River, is not stored using a third-party custodian. River has control of that Bitcoin using a multi-signature solution. And what's more, they suggest you get your Bitcoin off of the exchange and into your own pockets. So go check out River today.